Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, everyone. Today's podcast is the audio from a Zoom community chat with Dr. Edwin C. May on 8th of December 2023. Dr. May is one of the most knowledgeable Psy or remote viewing scientists and his long distinguished reputation precedes him. So I'll just let you hear my bio presentation slides from the night's introduction of Dr. May instead of repeating it all again here. I hope you enjoy the conversation with a veteran at the US Intelligence Remote Viewing Program and much, much more. Namaste till next time. Enjoy the show. Okay, so yeah, we want to say a great welcome to Dr. Ed May for coming along this evening. Uh, and thank you for, you know, spending your time and, and you know, all your, all your knowledge with us as well. What I'll do for some of you people that don't have a huge history of Dr. Ed May's work, um, I'm going to sh- go through a quick bio and then I'm going to hand over to, to Ed and he's going to go through some stuff with you as well. So bear with me a second while I kick this up here. Okay there, so uh, Edwin C. May spent the first part of his research career in his chosen PhD degree discipline, which was low energy experimental nuclear physics, which he earned in 1968 at the University of Pittsburgh. He became interested in serious research of psi phenomena in late 1975, when he joined the ongoing US government sponsored work at SRI International, formerly called Stanford Research Institute. 1985, he became that program's director, but in 1991, he shifted the effort to Science Applications International Corporation, another U.S. defense contractor. His association with the government-sponsored Psy Research ended in 1995, when the program called Stargate at the time was closed by the U.S. government. When the research was finally declassified in 2000, Dr. May was able to publish groundbreaking results and theories in the peer-reviewed literature. Since since that time, many additional papers appeared in peer-reviewed technical journals. Dr. May has managed complex interdisciplinary research projects for the U.S. federal government since 1976, and he presided over 70% of the funding, which is equal to around about $20 million dollars, and 85% of the data collection for the government's 22-year involvement in parapsychological research. His responsibilities included fundraising, personnel management, project administration, planning, and I'm sure there's a lot more in there as well. Dr. May is the Executive Director of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. Since its founding in 1996, 13 of 17 research proposals to private foundations have been supported. Under Stargate, he authored or co-authored 300 reports, and these were formally classified to various U.S. government agencies within the military and intelligence communities. <laughs> Dr. Main, his colleague, Dr. Sanati Bat Marwala, I hope I've said that correctly, have published four volumes of the Stargate archives, and these are available from Amazon and other sources 
in both ebook format, I believe, and in the physical ones. And here's my copies here. And they are a fantastic resource if you're really serious about looking into all the SRI research. So that's it for a very short bio. Uh, Dr. Edmay has given me a, a much larger one in this. And believe me, you know, there's a lot more to his background in his career. Um, what I'll do when we put the link up for this on, on, on YouTube, or if, if he allows me, I'll link to his CV on that, that, that you can have a look in more detail. But we'll definitely link to the website. And I have several other resources and links I will be fully linking to as well. So with that, let's hand over to Dr. Edmay. And again, uh, Ed, thank you very much for, for agreeing to come along and, and sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thanks, Daz. Um, that's going to be a hard act to follow there after that introduction. Uh, but I appreciate the kindness that you presented all. I just want to make a couple of things clear so there are not any misunderstandings. Um, in some regards, uh, both Sonali and I represent an oddball at the collection of parapsychology research because both she and I are, are, are materialists. We think that consciousness uh, is an emergent property of the brain, and when you cook the brain when you're dead, uh, that's it. We don't survive our bodily death. Um, however, there's an interesting idea in physics that says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I'm not about to fix my, change my research and outlook until such time it begins to fail, in which case I'd be happy to move over to a different perspective. So given that, I'm ready to answer some questions. Uh, by the way, no, no, I want to do something first. Um, as you might have to give me permission to show uh, my own screen here. Uh, yeah, the, the permission's on, so you should just be able to do that by the share screen button. Yeah, okay. Uh, there, there was a lot of questions about entropy, and I make the assumption that many of you may not know what that means. And I have just a few slides to, to show you about it. This was part of a presentation I gave at the um, uh, Society for Psychical Research annual meeting, which was held in Birmingham or near Birmingham, UK. Um, which by the way, if you hear me coughing crazily here, I flew from here to the, uh, the venue and back again, uh, two 24 hour trips uh, with no sleep and I'm now coughing my head off. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, UK. I'll, I'll never forgive you for that. I'll try to mute it when I go into a coughing fit. All right, here we go. Yeah, we uh, see that fine. Okay, this fellow, Ippolit Mozaevich Kogan, you probably have never heard of that character. Uh, in 1969, he published a paper basically saying that telepathy is real, and here's how it works. And that's uh, Kogan on the left side, and that's me behind him. And then Joe McMonagall was with me on this trip to Moscow. I met Kogan first in 1992. Uh, he is an amazing guy. He is an information theorist. Let's see here. There we go. Um, and he ran the classified program to do psi research. He's a big follower. So when I first met him, because his idea of, of how telepathy works is that the brain, when you're relaxed, is producing alpha rhythms, roughly 10 cycles a second, 10 hertz. And you modulate that like in an AM radio, amplitude modulation, that's what that means. And your thought modulates that in 10 hertz radiation will go all the way around the world. So it makes sense. Well, when I met the guy in 1992, I said, Professor, I've got bad news and good news. He said, what's that? Your idea about how telepathy works is wrong. We tested it with a submersal and it, it's wrong. And he said, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think it's wrong now as well. 
And his, I said, the good news is your idea, he was the first to suggest entropy, which we're going to talk about here in a moment, is inter, inter, intertwined with parapsychological phenomenon. It may end up being one of the mechanisms of how it actually works. So I thanked him for that. Uh, he uh, arranged for me in my first meeting with him to give a talk at Moscow State University. And then when Joe was with me, we had another talk at Moscow State. So it's, uh, that's quite an amazing uh, uh, university. Okay. So entropy, a brief tutorial. Uh, let's... We all yes. know what will happen if I drop this glass of wine. You're getting it? We are, yes. Good, I'm not. <laughs> that's okay. Now, the idea that this mess could somehow reverse itself and form back into a solid glass filled with wine seems absurd. But according to the laws this of physics, this guy is Brian Green. He's a well-known physicist. All I need to do is reverse the velocities of everything. Every piece of glass, every drop of wine, every molecule and atom in the liquid, glass, table, and air just reverse all their velocities. And voila! So, if the laws of physics don't care about whether glasses shatter or unshatter, why don't we ever see them unshatter? How can we square the laws of physics with our everyday experience? Something must be missing in our understanding, but what? What's responsible for the arrow of time? Like many good mysteries, this one leads us to a graveyard in our search for clues. In Vienna, near the final resting places of Beethoven, Brahms, Schubert, and Strauss, is 19th century Austrian physicist Ludwig Boltzmann's tombstone. Etched on top is an elegant equation, S equals K log W. It's the mathematical formulation of a powerful concept known as entropy. Entropy is a measure of something that we're all familiar with, disorder or randomness. And it's an important idea because there's a tendency of everything in the universe to move from order to... Here's a way to get a feel for the idea. Take my book, all 569 pages of it. It's very ordered, with the first page followed by the second, followed by the third, and so on. But now, let's tear the pages out and let entropy go to work. As you can see, the pages become very disordered. And the reason is simple. There is only one way for them to land in order but a huge number of ways for them to land out of order. And so it's much more likely that they'll land in a total mess. And this is what we experience in our daily lives. Things move from order to disorder. In this case, from a neat ordered book to pages that are randomly scattered. Everywhere we look, we see examples of entropy or disorder increasing with the passage of time. An egg breaks and splatters. Ice cubes lose their orderly shape as they melt into water. Billowing smoke becomes increasingly disordered. 
ordered states become disordered states. And that appears to be perhaps the direction of an arrow of time. We see sort of degrees of messiness, a measure of disorder, tend to increase in one direction of time. And so that, for Boltzmann, begins to create an arc of time. So maybe this is the answer. Maybe the arrow of time comes from the tendency of nature to evolve toward ever greater disorder. Kind of frustrating. All right, so if you have a pipe, and the more information you cram in the front end of the pipe, the more information you get out the backside. And we have done a whole series of seven formal experiments looking for a correlation with uh, psi results and uh, entropy, changes of entropy. As it turns out, information theory says change of entropy is equivalent to information. So we have all this, there's some statistics here, don't worry about it, 229 trials spread out over seven formal experiments. The correlation is there, but pretty weak, 0.211. But uh, there's a 95% confidence level and a p-value of 10 to minus four. But it's persistent, and that catches people's attention because retrocausality is a big mystery, and maybe we have some way of addressing it here. Okay, how to make a safe entropy dispenser. If three liters of liquid nitrogen evaporated in fractions of a second, <clears throat> it would constitute a serious health risk, otherwise known as death, for the LN dispenser. That's a pretty serious problem, side effect. Compromise. By using 2,000 half-inch aluminum balls in an ambient uh, at ambient temperature, we arrange the evaporation to occur at about eight seconds, totally safe. Now, I hope you can hear this. Here's a short video of what it looks like at Entropy Bomb. And there have been lots of discussion in the, in the questions. Here are the 2,000 balls in, in, a, in a styrofoam container. And here my colleague is pouring the nitrogen into that thing. Done. It takes about eight seconds for the whole thing to go. That's it. Gives you some idea about uh, what the nature of entropy is all about. So... Questions. I'm ready to blab my head off. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll start with some of mine first, because um, uh, you know I started off in acquiring questions from your your your, your early kind of career, your start at SRI. Um, yes. Uh, and I know that a friend uh, you you've said in various talks, a friend recommended you for the job, um, and I believe this was Ingo. Um, and I'm I'm. I'm just I'm not shocked, but I, I find it very interesting that at the time you you know you had no idea that uh, the projects you were just about to be kind of like enveloped in were actually being uh, funded. You know they were uh, uh, they were top secret and they were being funded by the CIA. And I just wonder what it was like for you to actually go from you know one environment in into that environment because I would have thought that would be quite a big shock for for anyone to to be in that predicament. Well, I had my first security clearance when, at the age of twenty when I worked at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica. So I was quite familiar with matters classified. So that part was no shock whatsoever. Uh, Ingo Swan and I did some work together at Maimonides Medical Center with the random number generator. And contrary to what you say, we actually published it in American Physical Society meeting. And I can send that around to you if you want what, what the paper looked like. And it was successful. Nice uh, p value, very small. Um, we became very close friends. Uh, 
he would come out to California. I had no idea what he was doing out here at the time. And I was living in, in his flat because I was working at my mom's medical center. And finally, he said to me one day, uh, there's an interesting project. I'm going to see if I can get you involved in it. That's all he told me. So uh, I think what happened is uh, he uh, convinced Hal Putoff that they should have a physicist on the program. Uh, Russell Targ's a physicist and Hal's, Hal's an electrical engineer, both talented guys. And uh, But my at that time, I was a big believer in and an expert with uh, psychokinesis experiments. And they had some reason to bring me there to do just that. So I showed up, I got my clearances renewed and Hal showed me all of Pat Price's early data. And I said, hey, Hal, why the hell are we struggling so much to get our work uh, uh, you know, accepted? This is knock your socks off time. And I'm still asking that same question here, you know, 60, what, 50 years later. <laughs> By the um, way, you use the word top secret. Almost nothing in our program was top secret. Okay. Yep. Um, it was secret with a bunch of caveats on the side, like no foreign, meaning no foreign people, uh, and a lot of special access programs and so on, very classified. But top secret, maybe we had some uh, overhead pictures from satellites as feedback, and I had to have a top secret clearance to look at those. Uh, the program, I mean, a psychic can say whatever the hell they want. That's not even classified. Yeah. It's when it's when it's put forward with the feedback, then it may get it may become classified. Yeah, excellent. And when you started, you know, it was it was seventy five, uh, and that was f- I think three years after um, uh, they'd start. They started in seventy two. Had based on you know your knowledge that had they gotten far along in the process of kind of coming up with what was happening, good experiments, no, good data. Not at all. Not not at all. The uh, from all the way up until I took over the program, we had no research uh, possibility, almost none, because we were we had a product that worked. And the, the intelligence community said, keep giving us the product. We don't care about how it works. And we kept saying, well, if we understood how it worked, we'd be able to have a better, much better product. And uh, it wasn't until um, uh, General Gary Garrison Ratman, who was then head of the Army Research and Development Command, uh, gave me a $10 million project. And he said, I want to figure out how this stuff works. So we finally had a remit to do some basic research. We did some under the guise of, well, we heard the Russians are doing this. Let's do an experiment to see whether there's anything to what they're doing or what the Chinese are doing. So we had some basic research, but almost none in the early days. Yeah. And um, for those people that you know aren't as up on their history as, as some of us that have followed this intently, uh, were you there at the time when uh, Pat Price and Ingo were accidentally kind of um, pressed in the, not pressed in the service, they were targeted accidentally on the Virginia listening post, which caused all the, uh, the furore of, you know, uh, having all the investigations? Because I would have thought that would be quite intense at the time. Well, um, Pat Price was first. Actually, <clears throat> that was what we in parapsychology would call a total miss. It turns out that uh, a guy at the agency, a guy by the name of Ken Kress, uh, asked one of his buddies to give the geographical coordinates of some place of interest to him on a three by five card. And Ken put it in his a pocket in the suit and called a pal and said, hey, I've got these coordinates. Uh, have Pat tell us what's there. How uh, Pat Price did not, in fact, describe a, it turns out it was this guy's camping cabin. 
And and if you read the uh, final report to the agency, Pat Price gave kind of a a flying version of what it's like. Oh, hey, there's something much more interesting over here. That's an NSA listing post. That spawned the largest internal investigation the CIA had ever had at that point. You see whether there was a leak. But it caught their attention. And so uh, people claim that we had a CIA program. No, we didn't. Uh, Less than 1% of our total funding came from CIA. Excellent. Um, uh, you and, and this is a bigger subject. I'm going to move into a bigger subject now because uh, lots of people are also asking questions about this as well. Um, you have the uh, your main theory on um, how uh, RV works is that it's uh, precognitive. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about uh, you know y- your theory behind that. For because I know there are quite a lot of people probably here that I've even chatted with in different circumstances that aren't sure themselves uh, of, that, of that theory. And uh, I wasn't until I had the discussion with you several weeks back and I've been watching every video you've done on it ever since. Oh, no. um, <laughs> and you're still awake. That's amazing. <laughs> it's great stuff, but I'm even more confused now than when I started. I, I, I really Look, don't know myself. It's very simple. Suppose you're taking an exam at the university the next day. And you're kind of a scuzzball. And so you sneak into the professor's office at night and you photocopy the answer book and you bring it home and you study the answer book overnight. And when, boy, when it comes time to take the exam, you really nail it because you looked into the answer book to get it. Well, we didn't invent this idea. Ian Stevenson did when he said we can explain Possibly, there's another explanation for our survival after bodily death research, reincarnation stuff, if in fact the person was just using their own ESP to do it. So we, uh, Sonali and I wrote a paper and published it in a journal publication called Collapsing the Problem Space of Informational Psi. If it's possible for you to have precognition, and I don't know if you guys know what the best evidence for precognition is, and I'll come back to that in a minute. then nothing, we don't know how to close the door to stop you from having a precognitive experience. We can't stop the future. (laughs) Uh, That raises other interesting questions. We're doing some research along that, but leave that aside for the moment. So um, suppose you want to do a telepathy experiment. Daz, you and I are going to do a telepathy experiment in front of everybody right here, right now. Are you up for it? Okay, I'll try, yep. Okay, I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 10,000. What is it? 501. I take out my pistol and kill myself. And what I take to my grave is the only way you could have gotten that information is from my brain. If I said, good show, you did a good job, oops, because you could use your precognition to look at that answer book, how well you did, and that you get so there couple of pathways for you to get that information. And that's kind of what's going on here. And when we look at all the phenomenon as we did in that paper, uh, survival after death, mediumship, uh, PK, uh, some aspect, oh, micro PK for sure, uh, other forms of PK, open question, uh, and so on, most of the phenomena in parapsychology fall into one idea, precognition. The best evidence for precognition uh, came from J.B. Ryan, uh, 60 years of precognitive card guessing with the Zener cards. And Chuck Arnott and Ferrari did, published a paper 
on meta-analysis about data, it was fantastic and it still stands today. Even the critics have said, wow, they have a Z-score of, of 12. Now, it's not quite as good as that because there's a file door problem. They, they, they modified that. But everything they could th think of was uh, worthy of, um, which reminds me one interesting thing there. Um, this is weird stuff. Everybody thinks it's weird. And so one way to lessen the weirdness of it is to see, hey, ESP seems to correlate with something everybody agrees is not weird. That catches their attention. So that's one of the things we're very much in entropy. Um, there's another thing which I won't go into in this talk um, called local sidereal time, which no one thinks is weird, but uh, local sidereal time seems to uh, correlate with remote viewing as well. Yeah. So th that's the motivation behind it, as well as to try to figure out how the hell it works. Yeah, yeah. And with with this uh, precog kind of theory, um, you're also saying that we don't it it doesn't have to be look we don't have to be looking at our own personal. Absolutely. future experience with this as well. That's right. Okay. In fact, uh, a guy by the name of Feinberg at uh, Columbia University said precognition is experiencing your own future. But look at it this way. I mean, there's nothing in the universe that makes you or me special. If an event in the future is broadcasting itself through four-dimensional space or whatever, why would it only focus upon you? Yeah. In fact, some of the best, we hardly, when you're doing uh, uh, intelligence collection, you almost never give anybody feedback. The reason being is that, uh, you know, if you're spying on the Russians and you now know that there's a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of uh, tanks on the border ready to come into Europe, if I told you as a remote viewer that's what you did and you put you at risk. So we, uh, that's not happening in, in, our, in the world of our collection using remote viewing for gathering information, uh, almost never told, <laughs> never told the researchers or the participants what happened. It still doesn't mean you can't look at their answer in their future. Yes. So, so you're, that, you're... it's really attractive because of that. It's where I find it. This is where it gets really complicated for me, and I find it really hard. Um, but we are also uh, we're also saying with this theory as well that um, other things can also exist side by side with the precog as well. Like, uh, and a good example is um, well, Ingo Swan when he looked at the magnetometer and he and he you know he affected the the, the wave output um, re remote viewing wise. Um, cause that obviously can't be, you know, that's not pre, that's not a precog action happening. That's something else, isn't it happening with that? Maybe, maybe <clears throat> in random number generators is very clearly, uh, precognition. Okay. Yeah. So, it, yeah. uh, it truly is. And we looked at that. Uh, I was going to show that, but that gets pretty, pretty geeky. Uh, we examined all the random number generator experiments from 1969 with Helmut Schmidt and his first one. I don't know if you folks know Helmut Schmidt in his first uh, RNG experiment. He called it, not PK, he called it uh, precognition of a quantum process. That was the name of the first RNG experiment ever done. And the next, the next paper he published well, we called it micro-PK. So I had lots of conversations with him later. And he says, well, I guess it wasn't micro-PK either. I mean, there's the overwhelming uh, evidence that 
random number generator is very much a psychic thing. It's no question. I mean, huge data, um, large effect sizes, but it simply is not mind affecting the generator. And you can think about it this way. Suppose you had a coin flipper and it was really a fair coin flipper landing heads and tails. And every time you flipped it 10,000 times, toot, 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 you wrote down heads, tails, tails, heads, heads across a long piece of paper. And as if I gave you a red pen and said, okay, using your physical eyes, look at this long piece of paper and draw a line where the next thousand flips has statistically too many heads in it. Because it's a random process, you would never have a problem doing just that. Random doesn't mean one zero, one zero, one zero, one zero. It comes in clumps. And how that works is, is really something. In fact, uh, bragging a bit here, there was a, uh, a statistician at Stanford used to send his students to come to me because he said, I'm a guy who knows more about randomness than he does. Because <laughs> we had to really try to understand it. Yeah. I have a question in the chat here that's just come up from uh, Kavan. He says, Dr. May, you mentioned that you, uh, I think this was previously, that you were already aware or a believer of a psychokinesis before you knew Ingo Swan. And he wondered what, what led you to that conclusion? Oh, well, I was aware of it. Uh, that that was um, I was sort of when I joined the SRI project, my job was PK. And I'll tell you an example that I had. I met Uri Geller once. Uh, he left the project, uh, was ordered to leave the project by the CIA. They he had too big a blabbing mouth. But uh, I was at a party uh, where Andrea Perharch had, had just published his paper called Uri, his book. And so I'm at this party. At that time, I wanted it to be true, okay? And so I'm standing next to a guy who may have the ability to do PK. One thing for certain, he's an extremely talented magician as well. So I'm standing with him next to a wall, and I said, hey, Ray, I've got my car key here. Did you put it in my hand? I put it in my hand, and my experience, my experience now, is he reached over his finger and sort of massaged the key, and the key bent up like that. I know it was my key because I couldn't drive home that night. I had to get my wife to come and pick me up because it meant my car key. And so people say, well, aren't you convinced of that? And I said, hell no. I wanted it to be true. And magicians can stage magicians can practically undress people on the stage and they don't know what's happening. So I'm at a party. It's not an experiment. In fact, when Put Off, Targ and Put Off published their, their first paper in Nature magazine, Targ says, we took Uri out for a uh, fancy lunch at our eye building at SRI, and he bent all the cutlery on the table. That was lunch, not an experiment. Mm -hmm. And when we tried to put the controls on, it, he, Geller could not, in fact, perform in PK. Does that include the, because uh, the, uh, I think we've, most of us here have probably seen the uh... The black and white, oh, is it black and white? I think it is black and white for film, which of uh, uh, SRI experiments with Ori uh, way back in, in the early 70s. Yeah. Okay. In yeah. fact, uh, I sent off to the archives uh, probably a box full of, of, of reel to reel videotapes. That was long before cassette tapes were around. And some of that data is there. Some of it's really embarrassing. Um, I'll tell you one that's embarrassing because it's going to be released. No, no, no. Uh, put off is there with Ingo and Bart Cox, one of the managers at SRI. Russ was not there for some reason. And uh, Hal reads coordinates of a remote site. 
except Hal knows what that side is. That's mistake number one. <clears throat> and uh, Ingo sits there and draws and says, okay, uh, I think I've got it. And it has an island and all this stuff. And Hal went over and looked at his response. He says, that's right. Here's a photograph of Kerrigan Island. And then you see on camera Ingo modifying his response. There's a name for that. It's called cheating. And it's part of the record. And I had to send it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as with all things, it's best to be honest, isn't it, with, with this? We have to be honest. Well, I was hired basically. Uh, uh, they had, because of the magnetometer thing that Ingo did, they went to local. That was at Stanford. So they had hired a really bought, really, or borrowed a really sensitive magnetometer. It was in the lab. And they would have Ingo try to grunt at it and see if it could change things. And so I went out and bought a, a bar magnet about this big. And I just walked outside the hallway, uh, uh, in the hallway outside the lab door, flipping the thing back and forth like that. And if you looked at the strip shot recorder, it followed my flipping this thing. I said, hey, you spend a lot of money on something that isn't working properly. Killed the experiment. Was was that the um, magnetometer replica? Because I, I vaguely remember reading replication uh, experiments for the magnetometer ones. Yeah, it, yeah. It, they had to abandon. It was funded by the Navy. Right, yeah. But moving on to slightly different subject, uh, you know, I've got a big list here. Um, something that, you know, we all know about is the uh, a program, you know, the host target kind of program uh, under its umbrella name was was terminated in, in 1995. Um, and I know you uh, fought very hard, you know, to keep it going uh, and you tried to keep going. And even the next decade afterwards, you know, you tried to get it continuing again. Um, do you believe, like I do, that the uh, the decision to close the program was a foregone conclusion before they'd even started? Uh, there was what's called a congressionally directed activity, CDA. And the people at, at Fort Meade, and which was handled by Defense Intelligence Agency, they were very unhappy with what was going on at Fort Meade. It was badly managed. So what they said was, uh, we're going to transfer, we're going to task the CIA of doing a 22-year retrospective on this field and see whether it produced actionable intelligence and whether it was worthy to keep going. That was the remit. Uh, the CIA uh, only looked at one year rather than 20 years. And they, uh, they asked me for a list of people that they should talk to, to which they only talked to one rather than a whole bunch of people. They did a terrible job. And they hired uh, American Institutes of Research called the AIR and produced a huge report called the AIR Report. If you're having trouble sleeping, I'd recommend reading this. They are cold, no time at all. Um, and the... <clears throat> They wouldn't let me, the project director, even look at the damn book. I had all the necessary clearances. They wouldn't let me look at it. So uh, one of the big supporters of our work was the then senator, ranking member on the Intelligence Committee, uh, Senator William S. Cohen, became Secretary of Defense eventually. But he was a big supporter of what we did. And I went in to see him and I said, hey, Bill, I'm, I'm really pissed off. I, I, they clobbered us and I haven't even seen how they're clobbering us. He said, what, you don't have the AI report? And he handed me his. So take this home and read it and then publish a paper if you think you can and pull no punches, end quote. And I did, and I published it in the JP and I have Journal of Parapsychology and in the JSC, Journal of Scientific Exploration. 
And absolutely everything I said in that two publications were, after the fact, totally wrong. Okay, yeah. And it turns out, uh, thanks to the release of all the data at CIA, we now understand why, how the program closed. It had nothing to do with the quality of the work. It was a financial decision labeled on, leveled on them by Congress. And they said, if you don't get rid of these small programs, your Cold War is over. We don't need to give you all that much money anymore. And if you don't get rid of it, we're going to close the CIA. Their quote, not mine. Boy. So we hit the dust as a result of that. And uh, is, is that do- is that documented somewhere? Yeah, it's in volume four. Oh, okay. I may have missed that. Then I'll have to go back and see if I can find that one. I'll, I'll send it to you. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, and as a follow on, even the quote that they're going to close it is in there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so there's definitely a solid smoking gun there. Yeah. Yeah. And as a follow on to this, really, and, and you know, I get asked this a lot. Um, we see this this come up a lot on on all the social media forums about remote viewing and stuff. And I have asked, and I have to be honest, I have asked, uh, and I can't name people, but I have asked other people that were in similar positions to you within, you know, your area of research. Um, <laughs> there aren't many. So who, who the hell did you ask? <laughs> I, I can't, I promised I wouldn't name anyone. Um, but the, and they gave me they gave me an affirmative to this, um, and we get asked a lot uh, this question. You know, is there any evidence, or have you seen um, anything about a con- you know a continuation of of a remote viewing program? Maybe not in the same guise, but in another format, in a special access program, or maybe farmed out to somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me that question too, right? I'm a, yeah. As I said, I had a I had a, an affirmative off the other person, but you know, I I'd like to gather as many opinions on this as possible. And you know, this is a public forum, so you you know, if anyone would know if there was anything can continue, and you you would be the person to know. Well, I would love for it to be continued. Um, we in the former Soviet Union have common enemy called terrorism. In fact, let me give you a small uh, vignette about that. Uh, I've been to Moscow many, many times. The last time was in 2015, and I knew their head of their remote viewing program and so on. And uh, uh, General Alexei Yurovich, uh, co- uh, General Alexei Yurovich Savin said one of the few times he ever talked to me in English, in fact, the only time he ever talked to me in English, we were all sitting around the table. And when you meet these big Russian senior people, you say their first name and the second name, which is really important. Yurovich means son of Yuri. That's where that comes from. Very important. So you always say, Alexei Yurovich, blah, 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 blah. And he stopped and said, and he answered me in English. He said, Ed, we are friends. Call me Alexei. And you see a staff do one of these. Oh, <laughs> God. And then he switched back to Russian and he said, I know you're going to report to the DIA. Yeah, I know you guys have been trying to get my my uh, um, organization chart. Here it is. He gave me his organization chart. Just take all the pictures of me you want. That's really cool. And I want you to write up a, a contact report because he, he's an intelligence guy. Uh, uh, Savin has two PhDs, one in philosophy and one in mathematics. He is no slouch, this guy. Very smart fellow. And um, we're good friends now. I mean, literally good friends. I've taught in his class and so on. But um, turns out that they used us to get, they said, oh, God, the 
remote viewing program in the States. We have to get more money so we can counteract that. And of course, I said, hey, we did the same thing for you. So it was one of these things. <laughs> okay, I've lost track here. Oh, why I don't think. All right, I wrote this up, a, about a 40-page classified document, and I literally handed it to the uh, three-star then admiral uh, at Defense Intelligence Agency in the Pentagon. I was in the Pentagon, gave it to it. And I said, uh, Alexei Yodovich Sabin, General Sabin is the way I worded it, really wants to do a joint program with us. And it's cheap, bottle of scotch, get you everything you need, and it doesn't put anybody in harm's way. So it's pretty a pretty attractive thing. And they, he, they want to join with us uh, to go after our domestic and foreign terrorism because uh, uh, subway stations were being blown up in Russia at the time. And the, this admiral said, oh, fantastic. I'm going to Russia next week. Uh, I'll look him up. So I gave him the document and practically I could hear him throwing it in the, bas- in the wastebasket as, as I left the building. Never happened. So that's why I think there's probably no more program going on. The supporters that we had, I mean, they, we had lots of people biting us. They wanted to close us down from God from the beginning times. I mean, the people at SRI, there's an English expression, American expression. Uh, they were measuring the drapes, meaning they're coming, they're throwing you out of your office. Let's see what size drapes, or drapes do we need on your windows, you know, that kind of thing. And so we came we made a lot of money, but there was huge dry spots in between. And uh, so surprisingly enough, our, most of our funding came from the Republican side of the House, not the Democrats. The Republicans were very much in favor of what we were doing. Now, I can uh, show you here. In fact, I'm, I left it up here. Let me bring you in, and um, you can just read this. What, what, what's happening here? is a section of one of my talks of the people in the U.S. government that knew and supported our, our program. And this is worth looking at, so stand by here. Excellent. Yep. Uh, uh, brief. Okay. You can see it? Yeah, we can see this, yes. Okay, I'll read it to you. Um, briefing is given to President Carter, President Jimmy Carter, Vice President George H.W. Bush, Chief of Staff of the Intelligence, House Select Committee on Intelligence, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, Secretary and Undersecretary of the Army, Undersecretary of Defense, Deputy Secretary of Defense, amongst others. Now, what is so astounding about that? Our program wouldn't even cover the cost for stamps in any of the true intelligence world. I mean, if you're going to launch a satellite to spy from outer space, <clears throat> that's a billion dollar project. We only had, you know, 20 million, that's nothing. And yet all these top guys knew about our program and liked it. Most of them are now all gone. It, it does, uh, it is different than what I've been told, but you know, I have two different viewpoints on this now. And uh, I've always said to people, you know, cause as you know, I've been doing lots of historical research um, and I was, for all these years i was when people said to me there's an ongoing program i was pretty unconvinced because you know why wouldn't they hire the very best people that were you know the cutting edge of the research at the time you wouldn't start afresh you know you would use your own resources and i never right and i never saw that happening in in any way at all in in any of the research that i found um going back to your uh 
your thermodynamic uh, entropy study. Um, I have a question here off of Deborah. She asked, uh, were, were the results of that uh, that entropy test you did, were, were, are they published anywhere in a paper? Uh, they are published as a final report to the Foundation BR, which funded it. Okay. I've never put it in a paper. Part of the problem is a number of people wanted to replicate it. And I, you know, to me, I'm going to bitch about something here because it's one of my pet peeves. Um, Daryl Bem did this amazing experiment with a thousand students and so on. And a, uh, a statistician, a Bayesian statistician named um, E.J. Wagenmakers from Holland just clobbered Ben for that. Long story short, that was the origin of all the journals now requiring to pre-register your experiment if you want to get it published. Now, they think that that sort of stops cheating because they thought Ben was cheating, which, of course, he wasn't. Uh, but it doesn't stop cheating at all. I mean, the only protection that science has against itself is independent replication. Because I could send them my protocol and then... Once the protocol I sent them pre-registered experiment, now the one I've got, since I wrote the code, I can cheat like bloody hell and get all kinds of bizarre experiment uh, data because of the fraud on my part. And then say, well, well, we want to see what the data is now. And I'd send them the original one I sent them. There's no way that that protects science from, from bad people. Anyway, that's just a grump on my part. That's not a problem. We, we all, all have our little grunts here and there yeah, as we get older, especially I do anyway. Um, you mentioned your visit to, to Russia um, and I believe, uh, and uh, Angelo Ford went with you on a couple of occasions as well. Didn't she on those? Uh, she was there on one trip. Oh, I have a trip. short video about that. Actually, if you want to see it, not a video, but a few slides. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Um, I, I'm asking because, you know, I just wondered if you know, um, how good their remote viewing program was? Was it you know were they more accurate? Were they were they better than what what you were doing in the U.S. Uh, or and and is there a current state of the play? Are their abilities? Do we know what's going on there now? Or is is the contact well, been lost there? One of our colleagues uh, who was a co-author on ESP Wars, Victor Rubel, <clears throat> native-born Russian, uh, <clears throat> was in the Russian army. Uh, became American citizen. He now teaches at the Defense Language School in Monterey. And we're good buddies. And he came to Russia with us, both as a translator and other things. But let me show you these few slides. I think you'll find it fascinating. And here you find. Okay, good. That's St. Basil's uh, Cathedral. It's the end of at the end of Red Square. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. Okay. And here is something that just blew me away. This is a photograph that I took of one side of a three-sided bus station, literally in the road right outside St. Basil's. This is, in English, an advertisement for the Wall Street Journal in Moscow. Can you imagine that? If Lenin could open up his, his eyes and see that, he would go berserk. I mean, there's kind of a three-sided bus station there. I think that is so cool. <laughs> Shows you how things have changed there. Okay, here's Alexei Yurovich uh, Savin. Uh, I've never met him in uniform. And I, when he showed me that picture, I said, hey, Alexei, um, with all that metal on your chest, don't you fall over and, on your face? And he said, I'm not, that's not funny. <laughs> that's what he looks like now. Uh, this is some of the Russian remote viewers here. Not all of them. He had 120 remote viewers when they were spying on us and, and so on. 
And in this particular collection, there's a guy right here we were never introduced to. I think Joe McMonagle is with me. He's there. And um, turns out, here's some of the viewers of, with Savin in the background. And what's different than our remote viewers, they get weapons training. They get hand-to-hand -hand combat training. And this is Elena Klibova, uh, who is ever much a good remote viewer as Joe McMonagle is. And uh, here's Joe and she, we both did a remote viewing under my supervision in Moscow. And she's wearing a pin. And now uh, that's the pin. And Joe and I are honorary members of that of, re, of the Russian spying group, uh, romantically named Group 10,003. Yeah, boy. Whew. Okay. This is a bit of a slideshow. That's Savin and me. I think it's funny I'm wearing the same shirt now that I had in that picture. Um, this guy is General uh, Boris Ratnikov, this guy here. That's, that's Savin there. And you don't think of KGB guys, he was a general in the KGB, as having a good sense of humor. He is one funny dude, let me tell you. Unfortunately, he died of COVID last year. But <clears throat> he says, you know, his first job as a major in the KGB was a political officer on a Soviet-era pleasure cruise boat. I said, pleasure cruise boat? Come on. Really? Yeah, we had them. His job was to, um, what I would say, uh, prevent people from defecting when they pulled into Western, Western ports. Big deal. Okay, so they're out in the middle of the Mediterranean, bored out of their minds. They decide, the women on the boat decide to hold a beauty contest to elect Miss Cruz. All right. Well, Major Boris Ratnikov, KGB, dresses up in full drag and enters the contest and wins. And I said, hey, Boris, are you that cute in a dress? He says, I'm gorgeous in a dress, just like that. Okay, time goes by, and uh, we're sitting uh, at, Angela and I are there together in, in 2015, and Angela's sitting on the couch, and I said, called Boris over. I said, hey, Boris, I know you're, you're cute in a dress. Are you prettier than she? And he looks down at her and says, nobody's prettier than she. And I said, when the fuck did you become a politician? Here's, Ange Oops. Here's Angela Ford here. Uh, this is a uh, second, former second in command of the KGB. He wrote a forward for ESP wards. And this is a guy named uh, Zvonikov, who is sort of my counterpart to their program. This is an important picture. This guy is Tofik Dadashev. He was the chief remote viewer psychic for the KGB. I met him five years earlier. Uh, uh, Victor Rubel and I were in Moscow together, and we went to his plush office in South Moscow. It, that office could have been in London. It could have been in Silicon Valley. It was gorgeous. He's Azerbaijani. That's where he's from, making a ton of money uh, using his psychic ability in support of business, and they pay him tons of money. So now five years have gone by and we're all in Moscow in 2015. And so we call him and say, hey, Tofik, why don't you come with us and have, we'll have dinner together? He says, okay, I want to have dinner at the Four Seasons Hotel, Western Hotel on the edge of Moscow, on the edge of uh, uh, Red Square. And that's where we are. And uh, he says, I hate the, we get along really well because he says, I hate the media. And I said, hey, Tofik, I also hate the media. I don't believe in PK, he says. I don't believe in PK either. So we are completely co cooperation with each other. 
And he said, Ed, I know how much I hate the media, but if you want to do a documentary, I'm your guy, which is a pretty interesting thing. He was there at this dinner with his, with his son. So Tofa and his son, uh, me, Victor, and Angela, five of us were at the steakhouse in this huge Western hotel. And I think the meal cost somewhere over a thousand US dollars. And I said, Tofa, why don't, you, why don't you and I split it? And he said, nope, I'm paying for it. And I said, okay, if I can get you coming to visit me in San Francisco, I buy the meals. He said, done. Very interesting guy. It's another interesting guy. Uh, this is um, Yuri Goliaev, this guy. He at one time was head of the Russian Academy of Sciences and he speaks fluent English. He came to visit SRI in the seventies, believe it or not, claimed that the CIA, that the KGB wasn't following him, but I doubt that's the case. I'd met him uh, earlier in Moscow and he was three hours late to our meeting and he apologized. He said, look, so that because uh, since I've become the director of the Russian Academy of Sciences, I'm a big guy and they we insist that I have my own limousine to take me to work. And I was stopped in traffic. Had I done the Metro, I'd have been here on time. He is an acoustic physicist and um, loves our entropy stuff and said, hey, I think, Ed, can you come and work in my lab for a year? I think I, we can build a chip, uh, an IC chip that is psychic based on entropy. And I said, oh my God, I'd love that. Wouldn't that be fascinating? And we couldn't make it happen mainly for, uh, it was a language problem more than anything. Here we are eating and drinking too much stuff. The Russians like both of those, it's Angela and me. Uh, this is ESP Wars East and West, and this is the Russian version of it. <clears throat> and we were at a conference uh, at, called Russia, at. Uh, Russian Gazeta, the military newspaper, sponsored it. And this is Victor Rubel translating for Angela, and this woman is translating for me, and here's, here's uh, Sabin. And what was interesting to me, much more so than any of the parapsychological work I know of, I asked this woman, I said, uh, Oya, um, you hear Russian coming into your ear, and English comes out your mouth. Do you have any idea what you said to me? She said, absolutely not. I have no idea what I told you. And I've asked a number of, of trans, not translators, but interpreters. They all say the same thing. It's kind of like when you're typing on a, a, an English typewriter and you want an L. You don't think, well, I've got to move this one finger down and press, and press down. It just happens. And, and Victor says the same thing. Now, this is interesting because we were there at Christmas. And what it says up here is Duma. This is the lower house in the Russian government. And guess what? We call this a Christmas tree, right? The Russians call that a New Year's tree. And they get really offended if they call it a Christmas tree. But it is a Christmas tree. Now, this is an ironic picture above all that I can imagine. I don't know if you recognize this building. Uh, it's in Moscow. It was the former prison and headquarters of the KGB called Lubyanka Prison. Uh, just all kinds of horrible things happened inside that prison. And after the Cold War was over, they were embarrassed about what happened inside there. So they changed the name of the building. But like true stupidity on their part, they didn't change the name of the metro stop to get to that building, still called Lubyanka Stop. And so here's Angela Ford, which you don't know about Angela, leave aside her psychic ability. She was uh, part for 35 years as a defense analyst, regular intelligence. 
And so here we have one of the nations. I mean, some of the stuff she's authored has been handed to at least one president of the United States, maybe even two, with her as the only author. Well-respected as a defense analyst, standing there in front of this building, I find it somewhat uh, <laughs> ironic. One day it was cold. Most of the time it wasn't cold. There was no snow. And that's us freezing our little tails off. So that's it. That's the story of the Russians. Fantastic for sharing those. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's great to see. Um, 120 remote viewers. That sounds like it was substantially larger than than what happened in the US. Um, do you, do you know what happened to it now? Are are they all in the private sector or? Is it gone underground? Dead as a doornail. Same with ours. We lament oh. it. Well, it's, it's a shame, isn't it? It's, it's such a waste of of human potential. Well, yes and no. Um, it was extremely useful. First off, uh, from the height of the Cold War, and that's in the late sixties, seventies, and eighties. Um, our satellite technology wasn't as good as it is today. So there's less need for this weird way of connecting it. And it's, it's very unreliable. You have to, you can't sole source. You never should sole source it anyway. But uh, there's kind of reason that we don't need it as much as a spying routine. Yeah. I think that's probably what's going on more than anything. Yeah, that makes sense with technology now. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on to something slightly different here. Um, and again, these are still my questions I'm going for at the moment. You know, I've, I've interspersed some of the other guys. Um, from my my internal research into the Stargate documents, uh, all the literature, the archives like Ingo Swans and stuff, it's always been clear to me, or it feels like, there was a very big disconnect between what you guys were doing at SRI, you know, which was very much <coughs> science-based, and what the military wanted to do. And it almost it feels to me like they completely jumped the gun and they they went straight into the operational use of remote viewing. Um, and I still I still feel like this. I have to be honest. I still feel feel like this disconnect permeates all of remote viewing to this day. You know, with science on one side, and and you know, I have to be honest. You know, the the Paul Smith, Lim Buchanan kind of military guys on the other. Um, do you think it's fair for me to say that there's this disconnect? That's an understatement. Um. It was more than just a disconnect. Our job, my job, was to be in uh, uh, science and statistical support of what they were doing, because the main thing we were doing was collecting intelligence. And Ingo Swan poisoned the well for everybody. Um, and Howe is a contributor to this. Uh, he, Ingo didn't like to travel out to California. Okay. So Ingo had his... Uh, well, when Ingo when I were getting to know each other before I learned about Stargate, we were in the having a uh, dinner in the entire Italian section of the East Village in New York, and he stops the conversation, looks right at me, and he says, "Ed, you don't want to be my friend." I said, "Why, Ingo?" He says, "I can be quote a bitch on wheels," which also was an understatement. But I, um, I, when he when he passed away, I wrote an old bit for the JP, and I quoted that and said it was an understatement. <laughs> Uh, he was a tough guy to get around. Uh, I liked the guy immensely. He, was, he has an IQ of 161. Very smart fellow. And um, I got to tell you, when he was working on his model, uh, CRV, coordinate remote viewing, 
Uh, it was very clever based on operant conditioning, except he's not a scientist and he has no idea what operant conditioning actually is, but don't let that get in the way. Uh, he really worked hard because he wanted to know how to understand what is happening to him. And we had a revolt on our hands. There were other remote viewers who said, no, we're not going to use this system. Uh, so they were fighting and screaming at each other. One sort of amusing story, Inga was uh, gay, and that doesn't bother any of us. And um, so, and, but he thought he was in the closet. I mean, your gay daughter would go off the rec record seeing him 50 yards down the street. But uh, okay, so Ingo comes charging in one day, told us how, get your wife here, who's a psychotherapist. We're going to have it out. Hella Hammond and I are going to have, have it out because they made a mistake of having the two of them live in a, in a single flat uh, while they were working with us for the summer. And they came up and were up to the, invited the entire project to go up to the third floor where our lab was. And Inga, uh, Ingo and Hella sat in the middle of, stood in the middle of the room facing each other, screaming at each other. And finally, Hella said to, to Ingo, you're nothing but a fat, 40 faggot prima donna. And Robert, oh no. <laughs> Ingo clutched his hands together, turned bright red, started jumping up and down and screamed, I'm not a prima donna, I'm not a prima donna. And we're about rolling off the table. <laughs> um, so he... Uh, he got cross-threaded with, with the Army, uh, with the intelligence community, because he thought he owned the copyrights to CRV. And he didn't, because he didn't buy it. He, he was paid to do it. And so, actually, the government owned the copyright. And that started a big fight between Fort Meade and, the U and uh, him, not us, but him. Uh, and the only way they could get out of that is Fort Meade changed the name of it to controlled remote viewing instead of coordinate. That's how, that's the origin of that. Okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Ingo tells me, or he told me a different story on why the, the name change happened, of course. Um, but you know, that's the thing I find with, with remote viewing history. There's, there are, there are all these different versions depending on who I speak to on this. Yeah, but the question is, would he tell you the same story that he would tell me? I mean, he and I were very close friends. Yes, yes. So I, I know the real story. The copyright thing, though, intrigues me because, you know, I I literally do have copies of, of 30 contracts that's, they, that absolutely say that Ingo owns CRV. I don't think so. It can't be. They do. They they say say he he is the sole owner uh, of CRV on on the and they are they some of them are are SRI signed signed contracts. You know, there's like multiple versions of them in in Ingo's and in the not so many in the SRI files, but there's loads in Ingo files. Okay, it's in the Ingo archive, not ours. Um, mainly in Ingo's archives, but I think there are be a very very careful of believing you for anything you find in that data set. I'm warning you. I mean, I'm not warning you that I'm going to do something about it. That stuff is Ingo's view of the world. Okay. But the, but some of them are actually signed contracts from SR, SRI saying that he, you know, he owns CRV. He's, he's the proprietary owner of it. it. That's to SRI. That's not to the government. That's the big difference. Okay. Um, I'm telling you, that caused a huge rift. Yeah, no, it's. We're struggling with that today. So me why? and you have discussed this, you know, because there's a whole thread in the SRI and Ingo archives called the uh, 
the documents the document documentation problem um and stuff so yeah we i've seen the uh the back and forth communications between how ingo uh i think it's sawyer at the time uh, and, and and a few other people as well yeah so it caused huge problems um but well, as we're how, talking about ingo and, and crv as well um how wrote you know, a letter to ingo saying if you don't clean up your act and document what you're doing then my management meaning sri management is going to sack me okay i haven't i haven't seen that in any of the archives is that would that be in rice mm, you will never see it in the archive i, okay. I withdrew it from it uh, uh and i now, wait a minute let me finish the story i went to hal's 80th birthday party which was a big surprise for hal not not the fact that i was there it was a big enough surprise but the fact is that his wife arranged for 60 people to be in this room so he walks in the door i'm sitting right by the door he says Ed, what the fuck are you doing here? I said, look, you bastard, I'm here to help celebrate your 80th birthday. And we got along really well. It was great fun. We, we reunited. So when I got home, I sent him a copy of that letter. I said, first of all, you don't know how he left us or I, do you? Maybe I've told it to you, but listening here, people won't know. I know. I don't, I don't know if the, if the majority of the other people here know. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> Russ Targ left the program in 82. So this was uh, in 85. Uh, Hal came into my office and said, hey, let's go get some lunch. So we walked, walked across the railroad tracks and went to a Chinese restaurant, which we were fond of. And in the middle of lunch, he said, Ed, I'm leaving the project. I've got a much better deal. I said, oh. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, well, he's going to probably take about six weeks as, as his deputy. There's a lot of stuff I don't know that he's been doing. He'll train me as to what I need to know, right? And I said, when are you leaving? said right after lunch what right right after lunch we went back to the and his car was all packed up full of stuff and he drove off then very next morning i was called into uh, our building management and sacked that when this program is over you're out of here so i called jack verona up at that time who was the deputy director for science and technical intelligence at, at dia and i said hey they're trying to fire me out of here he says let me call you back he called the head of SRI and said, if you fire this guy, I'm, I'm withdrawing all my funding for other SRI uh, DIA projects and save my job. Then I, he, I asked how, were you really sacked? Because you left under very strange circumstances. And it turns out that um, he gave me the biggest line of horse manure you can possibly imagine. I'm convinced he was sacked. Mm. It was just too bad. Yeah. Do you think that might have been uh, in part due to the, uh, and you know, I'm bust. We're busting myths here. Uh, the the Ingo cult of CRV, no documentation, copyright issues. All well, I think I think what happened was that at the time we only had one psychic, and that was Ingo, and so that gave Ingo quite a bit of uh, leverage, and he he used it with with a plum, and. Um, how, if I had been the manager, I wouldn't have put up with the 10 seconds. But uh, he did. And that's, and then the person who coined the term uh, Ingo uh, cult was Ingo Swan himself. He hated what Paul Smith and those guys were doing to his wonderful model, his wonderful teaching model. And the only real, there are only two papers printed about the whole thing. One that uh, Paul Smith put together, which is, I think it's probably spread around the community now, 
But uh, in volume one of the Stargate archives, there is the original paper that Ingo wrote. It was a draft copy of his model. Yeah, uh, 1983 uh, draft version of CRV stages one to three or something. Yeah, Yeah, it's the only one there is as far as I know. Yeah, yeah, because he kept on. And, you know, as we're talking about Ingo and the CRV stuff as well, you know, uh, me and you have discussed this. And I think I've told you that, you know, I did train in CRV and I personally found some of it useful, but especially the, uh, the ideogram process and the uh, AOL analytical overlay. I thought that was that the, both those were quite genius, but the, the actual way it was trained, the training kind of like dog kind of treating people like dogs kind of in a way I, I didn't, I don't get on with. Um, but you, I, 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 I believe you said in a quote as well that, um, and you know, I like to be honest about all this because I've seen documentation on this as well. That, and we got to be honest about this. Ingo CRV in itself as a training method was, uh, I think you quote, you said it was a disaster at the time. At SRI. Nobody liked it here. Yeah. The remote viewers had a revolt, and one of the reasons they were revolting is that Ingo had signs all over his office that said, "Content be damned. Structure is all that matters." Yeah. And where you put the AI, where you put the ideograms, and all that stuff that detracts from your remote viewing ability no matter how much you think it helps it doesn't gets in the way yeah and uh, i believe another big problem and something you know that I, I i won't do in any of my um rv development and training when i help people myself is that um is the way he trained as well with that with, with the monitoring i because i've seen the documentation on this in the in the archives um that was quite problematic wasn't it that he was actually there knowledgeable about each target as he was training each user. Well, there, there were three levels of training that he did. First of all, he thought operant conditioning was a good thing, and, and he didn't any of I mean, I came from the biofeedback world, so I knew what operant conditioning was. And so he, he had class A, class B, and class C training. Class A, Ingo sat there with a uh, opposite participant who's going to do remote viewing, and Ingo is looking at the photographic target for the remote viewer and giving him real-time feedback as he's talking. And, you know, when Dale Graff saw that, he went ballistic. He said, you know, you can't do that. And people get pissed at me because I had probably six giant boxes full of training of that technique. And basically, I, I threw them all out. They were completely worthless. Class B training, at least it was a double-blind procedure, and those that stuff was pretty good. Uh, class C was using it in an operational case. Now, one thing that Sonali and I know, um, the CIA released them, didn't release the names, uh, but the, the, project, the project numbers of all the operational remote viewings. And we have a book that describes who those people are and what techniques they're used. And uh, the CRB was used from time to time, but not very often what they called extended remote viewing, which somebody lies down in a bed and blabs off the top of their head. That was the main source. It did not work as advertised. I've heard you say this before in some of your um, interviews. Bear with me while I let someone in a sec. Um, And I think I sent this to you in the question as well. I I did in the past have, you know, because I debated this quite a lot with with Joe McMoney in the past and, um, uh, I also talked to Harry Putoff about this. And see, 
at the time, I found it quite contradictory because I have your opinion on this, and I also see documentation in the archives that that supports what you and you and Joe say on this that it didn't work. There were huge problems, but then I also see it like uh, there's a document written by Howe uh, in 1984. Uh, I think it was called Re- RV Reliability Enhancement, kind of thing, where he claims in that document that uh, double blind trials were kept uh, were were done on CRV and that it improved the efficiency of remote viewers from I think 33% to 66%. Um it, I, I know the paper well and it was a pile of you know what. Okay. Uh, what he that, was looking that's at Ingo's model was you get a rise time and then it tails off and what held justified not in advance he 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 took uh, the spot in the timing where to begin depending upon each trial. And that's a statistical error. Right. Now, let's us not continue along this path. You've got a lot of people out there and all you're doing is spouting your questions. How about some of the other questions? That's more important to me. You and I can talk forever about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, some of these, did, you know, that, that did come from someone else as well on discord, you know, about this, the CRV stuff and everything. Okay. So other questions, uh, Frank asks, um, well, this is, I think you've covered this, but he asked about uh, Ed May thinks micro PK is not really possible. He says you spoke about this on New Thinking Aloud, where you said that the uh, at first there might seem to be an effect. However, after more tests, the effect is gone. No, not at all. There's a huge effect. And the question then becomes what is happening in that effect? And uh, what we're able to show beyond any reasonable doubt. Um, in fact, one part in t- one part in a million fits the informational model as opposed to the PK model, and that's technical stuff. And if you want to look, there's a bunch of papers on my on my academia side. You can see all that stuff. Yeah, now, it, 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 uh, it's it's real effect. Something's going on there, but not what we'd all like to do: build a garage door opener or something like that with it. Yeah, Stefan asked. Um... He's got a couple of questions for you. He said, uh, how can you relate the Shannon entropy to displacement effect within ARV protocols? Oh, let me outline it as a two-horse horse race. Okay? And you want to use ARV to predict. First of all, why not just ask this uh, participant, which of the two horses, A and B, is going to win the race? The wrong question to ask. You should never ask a binary question for a remote viewer. That, in fact, won't work. So uh, what does work? If I say, okay, uh, Des, please access and describe a physical location I'm going to take you to tomorrow at 4 p.m. Meanwhile, the race happens today. So we do leaving aside all the protocols, uh, uh, and someone assigns, I'm blind to that, and you're blind to it. Someone assigns, if horse A wins, we'll take Daz to this site. If horse B wins, we'll take him to some other site. And the sites are as much different as we can possibly arrange them. Okay. And um, there is an interesting philosophical question that arose in a real case. Uh, we were working with a, a remote viewer named Gary. Um, and we, I said, Gary, please access and describe my place I'm going to take you to tomorrow at 4 p.m. He said, fine. And end result, uh, it, we, uh, Bev Humphrey and I went to the horse race and put $2 down on a, on a far out with an with a unlikely chance of winning, but it won. We won $300 on the basis of a $2 bet. Not bad return on investment. <clears throat> so the next day, Bev and I went to, to see him and said, okay, Gary, we are going to, We'll take you to this really 
fascinating place now. Let's go. He says, hell no, I'm watching football on television. Give me my share of the winnings. Now think about that for the minute. If he could act, so if he accurately described where he was going to be at four in the afternoon, he should have described his living room. What he did was he described the alternative, but non, non, not realistic, did, uh, a, a, a probable, most probable site, which was the place where he'd normally take him to the actual site differently. And that raises the question of free will versus determinism. And it's a, a giant mark in favor of free will. So if you get a psychic dream in the middle of the night, you're going to get hit and killed on the way to work. Stay in bed. You'll be just fine. Good news. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we have a question from a, uh, someone on Facebook called Frank. Uh, and he says, is Ed May aware of the work of Donald Hoffman, who suggests that we are conscious agents and that we are normally aware of is more like a computer desktop interface and we don't receive real reality in any way? Well, that's a common uh, idea. A lot of people are saying that, plus uh, uh, um, the ultimate intelligent design, we're actually part of the simulation, and it isn't real in the first place. I, if you make a list of competent philosophers, no, who, no matter who you put on that list, I'm at the bottom of that list. So it's so not always the, the philosopher in our group, not me. So the short answer to that question is I've never heard of this guy. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, a question from Violetta, uh, uh, again, off Facebook asks, uh, what did Ed May discover as the mo most advanced levels of knowledge in his career related to human capabilities? Precognition. Period. Yeah. I think that's the source of it all. Excellent. And it's great. Uh, uh, the, I don't know if your people know a guy by the name of Rex Stanford. I don't know if you know that name at all. No, he, I'm not sure that. he was a psychologist and he wrote a paper with the unfortunate title, Psi Mediated Instrumental Response. And please don't ask me what the hell that means, but it was an interesting paper. In that paper, he said, look, uh, if Psi is uniform, is Psi, if Psi ability is part of the Homo sapiens brain structure, which it looks like it is, it doesn't mean everybody has the same level of psi. I mean, every, you know, there's no human activity that everybody has the same level. There's a distribution of some kind. Okay, if that's true, then um, it just seems very clear that uh, this business of what, what uh, Rex Stanford said, we use our unconscious psi ability to maneuver through life as, as an assist. And I'll give you a personal experience of that. I was teaching undergraduate physics at City College of San Francisco. Probably one of the few jobs I had that I disliked intently. Anyway, I'm sitting in my office around four. I knew a friend of mine was coming from the East Coast, and he was attending a conference in downtown San Francisco. He says, show up in front of the hotel at 5 p.m., and we'll go out for dinner. So it's now uh, 4.30, and I'm thinking, oh, shit. I don't want to know. I gave a hundred good reasons why I'm not going out the door. I'll be trapped in traffic. It'll take me until six to get there, blah, blah, blah. So eventually I said, oh, he's going to be so pissed off at me. And I get in the car and I drive and I pull up in front of the hotel. It's before cell phones. I pull up in front of the hotel. And he says, Ed, how long have you been here? I just got here. Oh, thank goodness. I was trying to get hold of you because we were delayed by an hour. There's an example of what Rex Stanford said. I used my unconscious side. To, and then gave all kinds of arguments why it was happening rather than sigh. 
that helped me wander through that part of life. And that's a fairly common experience that people have. In fact, there was a paper in the 50s, although Jessica kind of slaughters it to some degree. In those days, train travel was the main mechanism in the U.S. to travel around. And they had a lot of statistics on what they called no-shows, that a train going from point A to point B crashed on the way. But they had, uh, and they looked at how many people canceled their reservations prior to that time compared to the same time of year, same weather conditions. And there was a significant difference. The people, again, it wasn't a case of, oh, God, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to get killed on this, on this train's going to crash. No, it was life got in the way. You know, my cousin coming in from Peora and so on. It's very, very interesting stuff. Does that have any relationship? I, I can't remember what the book is called, but I, I have a book in my library about uh, C, CEOs um, being, you know, getting where they are in life and getting rich based on on their intuition as well. Ex- executive ESP, it's called. That's the one. Yeah, that's the book. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah very interesting indeed. I have a question from John Dixon. Um, he says, in your professional opinion, what makes a great remote viewer and what advice can you give to someone to become successful with their remote viewing? Well, the first answer to the question, David Eagleman, a well-known neuroscientist, says the three most important words of all of science are, I don't know. So what makes a good remote viewer? How do you find them? I literally do not know. The only way I know how to find them is get them in the room and have them try to remote view and pick the few that are the best and bring them in the lab and do it right. That seems to work. Yeah. Uh, what was the second half of the question? Um, what advice can you give to someone to beca- become a su- successful with remote viewing? Stay away from all the army guys for, for starters. Why would you pay $1,500 to learn how to do associated remote viewing for someone who's not a scientist? That's throwing your money down a, a rabbit hole. Okay. Uh, my advice would be to buy Joe McMonagle's book, Remote Viewing Secrets, for about 20 US. They'll tell you everything you need to know, none of which is how to do remote viewing. It's how to not fuck it up. Excellent answer on that one. Uh, and I have a question from Ralph Burton from Facebook. He says, is there anyone currently funding uh, any research that you're doing? Yes. Uh, I'm being funded by a group down in uh, Brazil. Uh, we are aimed at doing neuroscience. Uh, my boss there is a neuroscientist. His wife is equal, uh, better neuroscientist than he, this statement. And when I first met him in Brazil, we were in Rio. And I walked up to Fernandez's wife and I said, look, my wife calls me a brainless moron. And you have every brain measuring gadget here and it imaginable. Can you take a picture of my brain? Because I want to show her at least she's wrong about the brainless part. I have one of those. And she said, yeah, we could do that. But would you like your data to count for something? And I said, yes. What is it? And there's a site you can go to called the Human Connectome Project, very similar to the Human Genome Project, where people do research on how the white matter of the brain, how chunks of white matter communicate back and forth among themselves. And it's a it's a precision a, diff, a mechanism called diffusion tensor imaging, and I sent, spent seventy minutes in a three Tesla scanner while they did all this, and about a week later the technician came to me and said, "Ed, we need you back in the scanner." Oh, got a brain tumor. Oh no! <laughs> it turns out that um, they just wanted some background data. 
But if you go to the Human Connectome Project, uh, there are some absolutely stunning, stunning pictures. Let me show you just one and you'll see. I mean, it's something you want to put on your wall, for goodness sakes. Hang on a brief second. Yeah, no worries. Take your time. Okay. Human Connectome Project. Here you go. Uh -huh. Let me see if I can get this a little smaller. Okay, can I bring you in just to show you one picture? Okay, let's do that. This is one image on the uh, Human Connectome Project. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It's all false color, of course. And I asked Fernanda, I'm a physicist, I know about diffusion, what the hell is diffusing, which I didn't know. Uh, if you have a nerve sheath, uh, like optic nerve from the back of your eye to the back of your head, basically, uh, that, was, that sheath is surrounded by what's called the myocardial sheath. And inside of that is water. And so what is diffusing is the water. And the, off, the uh, false colors here are the direction in which the water is flowing. And this side has just a whole ton of these things. Uh, they have a gallery here. There's a gallery here. And you can see see them in all kinds of interesting pictures. Very nice, stunning. <laughs> so our idea, Sonali came up with a model. And again, it's her brilliance, not mine. Um, I don't know if you know or the people listening know what's called synesthesia. I was going to ask about that because that seems to be a, a, a possible identification trait. Well, it turns out every single one of our top remote viewers is a Cineset. Hmm. Carl, are you a Cineset? She's nodding yes and no. So literally, the best remote viewers I know on this planet, they're all, not missing one, are all Cinesets. That is a giant clue. And there is about 4% of the population are uh, have synesthesia. And they don't think it's anything special. I mean, you don't see numbers and color? What's wrong with you? I thought everybody does. <laughs> so, um, Do you think there I, might be a creativity element there as well? As well? Because it seems to be most of the uh, good remote viewers seem to be very creative individuals as well. Yeah, they, uh, I'm not sure in remote viewing part, but in the Gonsfeld for sure. Uh, there have been studies uh, at the University of Edinburgh on creativity versus performance yeah. um i don't know that's an open question i mean there's a, those are important psycho psychological questions and physiological questions all wrapped up together and um if i can get a little bit off color here um i wanted to leave the parapsychological association so i went i was president one year and on the board of which i'm so i went to dean radin who was the then president of the pa and i said dean i want to quit the pa he says, okay, what can I do to bribe you to stay another year? And I said, well, what are you offering? He said, how about the Career Achievement Award? And I said, Dean, that plus $3 will get me coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> Is that all you want? So they gave me the Career Achievement in 1997. And the next year uh, at the PA, which was in, uh, in, I forget the name of the community, just outside of London. It was a joint, measure, um, joint conference between the PA and the SPR. And the tradition is, if you get the Career Achievement Award, you get to give a whole hour presentation bragging about your great, 
uh, you know, your great uh, accomplishments. So I said, hey, and coat and tie, you guys know, you know me for 30 years, so you know exactly what all my great contributions are. And I walked in front of the podium, put my hands on my hips, and I said, now, let me tell you what's wrong with you bastards. And I ripped them apart for an hour, including myself in certain cases. And I said, I'm about, this is going to sound like bragging, but it's not meant to be. It's pathetic. I hold, and I've confirmed this with uh, uh, Stan Krippner, uh, I'm the only person so far in the history of the field that had a 20-year career, paid industrial-scale wages with benefits, and had no other job but sci research. No other job. And that's a career. The rest of us are a bunch of amateurs, literally. And uh, I, I can practically hear them dialing the tar and feather companies to come and get me, you know. <laughs> but I was surprised how many people came up to me afterwards and said, we've been thinking about the same thing. And it's a problem because it's just hard to get students. I would never advise a student to get into this area. Go do, get a, a degree, and I don't care what other discipline, then come back to this area. Yeah. 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 It's a shame, isn't it? Because in, in the last, well, Stargate ended in 95, but I haven't seen any major funding in this field to the, you know, to the tune of millions since. Do you, do you think there may be no. at some point? I hope so. Um, I'm working on the problem, as you can imagine. But um, the guy funding me in Brazil is uh, not in the millions class yet, but yeah. keeps me funded. Uh, Edinburgh University has some nice change, thanks to Arthur Kersler, but not not the same kind of level that we had. And the thing that, that really helped with having all that money, besides it was fun, was that... Uh, we we didn't have to become amateurs. Like if we wanted to do a study on lucid dreaming, we didn't have to say, oh, let me see what I can find about lucid dreaming and then do at least a lucid dreaming study where you screw it up from the get-go because you you're not an expert in it. What we could do is hire the, the best lucid dreaming guy there was. Actually, yeah, um, subliminal perception was the question we were looking at. And... Uh, we hired a guy at SRI to come and work for that project for a while. And I said, hey, we have a lot of stuff about all this. And I sent him a whole bunch of papers about it. And he wrote back and said, this is a pile of crap. I said, that's the reason we're hiring you, because we don't have any idea what we're talking about. You do. So that meant the quality of our research skyrocketed positively, because we could hire experts who knew what the hell they were doing. Yeah. yeah. Some of it didn't get published. Like I said to you once before, we hired Stanford's uh, top learning theorist to examine Ingo's procedure. Yeah. And he junked it, except for one brilliant piece at the beginning, and that is responding immediately after hearing the coordinates or whatever the tasking thing was. Yeah. And actually, somebody in our group, uh, Nevin Lance, uses that. Yeah. So when I task him, I said, please access and describe a photograph I'm going to show you in about 15 minutes. And access to that photograph is through the keyword target. So when I say target, he responds and gives me the first thing that pops in his head. That was very, very useful. Thank you, Ingo. Yeah, yeah, excellent. I have a, I have a couple of questions here uh, that came through Discord. Um, well, one came through Discord, one came, came through uh, Facebook. Um, and it, it's about uh, your Rice Archive stuff. One's from Mark. He says uh, he was looking for the Rice Archives uh, of your files, and he found what looks like uh, uh, something to do with Spanish galleon treasure hunters. Uh, and he says, did RV find the Atosha goad? 
we looked for, but no. But we did a much more interesting study. I mean, leave aside how much money they've gotten for that. We were working with a dowser named Fran Fairley, who's unfortunately not with us anymore. She was in her 70s and what was called an informational dowser. And she had a little uh, piece of plastic in her pocket about the size of a cell phone like that. And she'd take talcum powder and put it on the top of this piece of plastic. And so if you gave her a list of options that might be possible answer to the question you're asking her, including none of the above, and she starts rubbing her finger, left hand uh, rubbing this until she experiences it stick, hesitate. That was the right answer. Using that technique, she um, uh, was able to identify previously unknown uh, SS-20 missiles in East Germany during the Cold War by sliding down the x-axis and the y-axis to do it both. It was just brilliant. Anyway, okay, so <clears throat> Bev Humphrey and I and this mar- marvelous woman, Fran, uh, we found a, a map just off of the coast of Florida that had a Spanish galleon on it that had no treasure aboard. It was just noted that the Spanish galleon was there. So I took, uh, made uh, blank pieces of paper about a, a foot in diameter, completely blank, and I would lay them on, um, on the map where the, the galleon was really, and I would have them offset. They wouldn't be the same on each of the three and keyed them so I could put them back, back on the map. So we got where he then went a boat, rented a boat and got out and anchored on the site itself. Fran was with us. I said, okay, Fran, here's a piece of paper. Use your technique and find where you are just now. She goes, mm. So she made a mark and did it on all three pieces of paper. And then we said, well, we'll take the center of gravity of that as the answer. We were like 150 feet off and 20 square miles of water. Pretty very damn good. Excellent. And I have another question on the rice things, and I have a feeling this might be slightly inflammatory, but I'm going to read it anyway. Yeah, okay. Uh, I can be and, equally inflammatory on, the, on my response, so go for it. Yeah, it comes from Deborah Linkarts. Um, She says the collection at rice. Uh, there are many sessions in there from the early days of the SRI programs before you were the director. Uh, yeah. Did you get the authority to keep these papers and share them with Rice? And if so, uh, well, where did you get that permission? Can you be specific? I didn't have to. I didn't have to. They were part of the Stargate record. I had a storage area. I had the end. I had two very expensive storage areas because we had a huge, huge amount of data. Uh, so there was no requirement. Rice didn't complain about that at all. So the answer is I didn't. Nor did I have to. Thanks for that one. Uh, I, I had to ask it. Um, and I have a question here in the chat from Elizabeth. She says, going back to the Russians, uh, what training methods were developed by the Russians? And how does the Russian tradition of remote viewing differ from how the uh, you you guys and the Americans were doing it? Well, for one thing, I told you, for the going off the war, they had to be at the site. And I said to Alexei Yurovich, I said, hey, what about remote and remote viewing you don't understand? You don't have to take them there. He says, yeah, but when the bullets are whizzing over their heads, they're highly motivated. Short answer to that question, which is a very important one, uh, I learned from Victor, who was in the, in the Russian ar- army, that once something is classified in Russia, they never declassify it. So I have shared all kinds of stuff with them, formerly really classified sensitive stuff, which is now unclassified. They never give me anything in return, nothing. 
Now, the only reason I know how they do this is because I've taught in uh, Savin's class and I saw how, see how he goes about it. And it's very much like anybody else, the way they teach it, as far as I know. I think they, they did try to do what we did, uh, find the best people instead of the, the idea in psychology is the best research they think is the unselected subjects. You know, then, because you're asking the question, this phenomenon, teaching or whatever in your psychological thing you're investigating, it's best to answer answer that question across the population at large. You know, if you want to know who makes good teacher, you don't want to narrow your population. But if you want to ask a different question, what is it about the best teachers that make them the best? Then you don't want to have people dragged in from the street. You want to hire the best people there are. And that was our approach. Yeah. Uh, a question that just come in my mind: um, the percentage of the population that are what we class, you know, good remote viewers on the on the level of the people you use, what would you say that is? Is is it less than is it less than one percent, or do you have a percentage well, of? We certainly couldn't. We certainly couldn't monitor the entire population of the planet. But what we did was looked at six hundred people, six hundred people, uh, three or four different categories of them. <clears throat> we had People, two groups of Mensa, two groups from Stanford uh, alumni people, uh, the um, mapping agency from the federal government, and SRI. <laughs> and the way we did that was a two-stage process. We'd have a room full of 50 people. In fact, SRI was kind of fun. I got permission to advertise on the SRI local network. We're doing remote viewing. We're going to find the good remote viewers. And one guy, well, keep nameless, just went ballistic. We thought we got rid of those Charlottes put off and tarred. What the hell's going on? Blah, blah, blah. Well, he sat in the front row like this the whole time, you know, we're doing this. He scored the best of the room. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we took the top 10 people qualitatively and brought them into the lab one at a time for eight sessions. And they had to have a figure of merit. I mean, a, a, an effect size above a certain level. And that's the way we found people. Excellent. We've got a couple, uh, we're getting close to the end now, and you know, so I'll wrap up with the last few questions here. And a couple of people have asked similar questions, and and it's, have you ever seen any or had any research regarding RV uh, that, that I've kind of identified uh, good candidates that have ADHD or something similar? No, uh, we, we didn't look at that sort of thing because none of us have the expertise to look at folks who are suffering from that. I know I have a very good friend who suffers from that mightily. It's uh, under control, one of whom is a pretty good remote viewer. I'll just leave it at that. Excellent, excellent. I'm just looking through the list here. I think I've gone through pretty much all the questions because a lot of them now are just repeating You know, a lot of the stuff that we've gone through, really. So I think you know uh, it's been nearly two hours. Uh we'll leave it there if that's okay. And I just want to, you know, on behalf of everyone here this evening and the people that will watch this on YouTube, thank you for being so candid and taking the time, especially in like, you know, you've got a bit of a cough like the rest of us at the moment uh, in answering these questions for us. It's been, it's been yeah. great fun and very informative. Has great fun for me too. And I want to thank everybody. Carl, please contact me. We've got to get moving together. All right. I'm staring at you. <laughs> <laughs> She's going thumbs up. That's good. Yeah, I'm sure she's, she will do after this. She's yeah. an accomplished remote viewer. And... I I know her well. I uh, Me and Carl worked on many projects together. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Ed, again, thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, and I look forward to, you know, 
talking to you on, on future projects and bits and pieces uh, to do with RV. Again, thank you very much. And, you know, have a, have a great rest of the year, uh, Christmas holiday. And everyone else, if we don't speak to everyone else here in the meantime as well, all of you guys have a great Christmas holiday that's coming up as well, guys. Well, thank you all for watching and listening. And you can't throw spitballs at me. Thank goodness. Help. <laughs> thank you. So, uh, yeah. Oh, Thanks, hey, man. there's a guy I recognize. <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> Thanks, Ed, so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.